it is well with our soul. Friends, that is not a funeral song. Amen? Can I get an amen? amen. Some of you very kindly, um, I, I'm sure very kindly, would often say, well, the service today sounded like it was a funeral service. Now, what you typically mean by that, let me translate that. What you typically mean by that is the songs were typically more reflective and may have dealt with issues of lament more than usual. But let me say very clearly, we do that deliberately. We deliberately want to have services once in a while that have songs that are typically sang at funerals. But that doesn't mean we should sing them in a sad way. Friends, let me remind you of the word, the third stanza, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. How can we sing those words as if it's a funeral service? I know we're going to have a funeral service in our congregation this week. We have prepared this song for like two or three weeks ago. We didn't know that we are going to have a funeral service this next week. I encourage you, when we have songs that are, are more reflective, perhaps they're not as excited and hip-hop, when we have songs that are more reflective, Meditate on the words. And even though they may be more mellow songs in terms of melody, rejoice when you sing those. Because the truth of what we declare are glorious. Now that introduction was not part of my plan this morning. But I just thought with a song like that, we need to sing, even if it's reflective, we need to sing with, with joy and praise. And then thinking about the fact that we pray that God would haste the day. We, do, we should do that with joy. Well, this morning, I do want to talk to you about the fact that Jesus said that in this world we will have trouble. And thinking about the way we reflect about that truth is important for us. We Christians are not just joyful Christians all the time as if there's no trouble. We're joyful Christians all the time because we're people who know how to go through trouble. And that makes a big difference. Let me ask you this morning, do you like to receive warnings? Do you like to receive warnings? Depends on what the warning is about. If it's about a job performance, receiving a warning is not good. We don't receive those well. But, if the police pulls you over and all you get is a warning when you should have received a ticket, receiving a warning makes your day. Now, think with me. If danger is on the horizon, such as a devastating hurricane, receiving warning about it can be life-saving. There are times in our lives when warning about upcoming danger helps us prepare ourselves so we can deal with it well. In such cases, receiving a warning is a very precious thing. Now, in some ways, this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples on the night of his arrest. He gives them warnings about what's coming so they will not be caught 
by surprise and unprepared. More so, Jesus also gives them comfort and assurance that what is about to happen to them is part of the plan of His victory over the world. So we need to heed the message, this message of warnings, comfort, and assurance. Would you open Scripture to John chapter 16? We'll be reading this morning the entire chapter. If you're visiting us and you don't have a Bible with you, we encourage you to, to pick up a Bible in the chair in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 938. John chapter 16. By the way, for those of you, if you're, any of you are visiting and you don't have a Bible, we hope you would take ours, take it with you. It's there for you to take home and read it. We want to, we want to give it to you as a gift. John chapter 16. God's Word this morning for our hearts says the following. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asked me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born unto the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then the disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that His Spirit will lead us into all truth as we seek to apply this word to our hearts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have promised us your Holy Spirit. And we believe He's here among us because we gather in the name of Christ. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will guide us in this truth and apply this truth to our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, I know my title has three words in the, in the title, warnings, comfort, and assurance, but my sermon only has two points. Can you handle that? Two points. Two truths that Jesus gives to his disciples to prepare them for what's coming. And the first point, if you're taking notes, the first point is prepare for rejection. Prepare for rejection. In the previous chapter, chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus began revealing to his disciples that their fruitfulness will raise the opposition of the, of the world. So Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for this rejection. Look with me at verse, six, at verse 1 in chapter 16. Jesus says, all this... I have told you so that you will not go astray. Jesus wants to protect his disciples from falling away. I love what Don Carson says about this. The greatest danger the disciples will confront from the opposition of the world is not death, but apostasy. Let me repeat that. The greatest danger the disciples will confront from the opposition of the world is not death 
But apostasy. Yes, in the face of persecution, the greatest danger is not losing one's life, but losing one's faith. The greatest danger is walking away from Christ for the sake of keeping one's life. And at the end of chapter 15, Jesus gave two reasons why this opposition from the world was going to come. Let's look at these two reasons. This is a review from what we've covered last week. First, because the followers of Christ no longer belong to this world. Look with me at verse 19 of that chapter. Jesus says, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. And then he goes on and he says, as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. That's the first reason. The second reason, if the world persecuted Jesus, they will persecute his disciples as well. Why? Because of the principle Jesus gives in verse 20. Look with me at what Jesus says in verse 20. No servant is greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. Now, these two truths are important for us to remember in any situation. When we become children of God, two key changes take place in us. We no longer belong to this world because Christ has chosen us out of it. And the second truth is that we have a new master who was crucified at the hands of sinners. Now, friends, these two realities are experienced by every true child of God at the moment of conversion. If you're a Christ follower this morning and you have experienced that conversion, that change of heart, that new birth, do you meditate at these truths? Do you think upon this reality that, one, you have been chosen out of this world, you no longer belong to it, And second, that the master you are called to follow is the one who has suffered at the hands of sinners. Friends, if these two realities are true, and they are, if these two realities are true, it means that it is very natural for the world to oppose those who follow Christ. Actually, We should be surprised, not if the world opposes Christians, but if they don't. Freedom of religion is a great blessing instilled in the constitution of this country. But it's a rather modern phenomenon. And it's a phenomenon rather uh, refrained or made only for the Western Hemisphere. And we don't know how long it will last. Christ has not promised his followers freedom of religion. But quite the opposite. He warned them of upcoming opposition. Now, we rejoice and we praise God for the freedom of religion. But we don't know how long it will last. So how is this resistance against the disciples Are going to be manifested. What did Jesus 
warn them about? Well, let's look. Uh, first of all, Jesus says that his disciples were going to be excluded from the synagogue. In Isaiah 66, God predicted this rejection. Isaiah 66, the passage which our brother Kyle read earlier in our service. Verse 5 says the following. Listen carefully. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Yes, Isaiah predicted that the Jews will exclude their own brothers from the synagogue and do it even in the name of the God whom they thought they worshipped. And this was prophesied 700 years before Christ. And now Christ, for the first time, says it will happen soon. Now, it's not simply that these disciples were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. They were also to face death as well. When these disciples will remember that Christ himself was rejected and killed, and their own destiny of persecution will be an assurance that they are indeed following in the path of their master in the way of the cross. Now, friends, I don't know who you are this morning and how you feel about this, but it's very clear that this is not a very appealing future for the disciples of Jesus. These kind of warnings don't bring us joy. The perspective of such a future for the disciples of Jesus lowers the likelihood that people would respond to Christ, humanly speaking. Uh, think with me for a moment. What if we had to evangelize in a time when following Christ brought the risk of persecution? What would we say about Jesus? How would we appeal to people on behalf of Christ? That your best life is now? What about our own faith? Would we persevere in following Christ? Would we cling to Christ if the perspective was rejection and even death? What would keep us away from going astray? Well, in Isaiah 66, the Lord says about those who persecute his followers that they will be put to shame. God is still in control. Even when his enemies seem to have the upper hand, God will have the last word. We must be convinced of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, that he is in ultimate control, because that and that alone will help us to persevere when the world will reject us. But there is another truth that will help us persevere. In Isaiah 66, God gave a picture of a woman giving birth and of the joy and peace and comfort that God will bring to his people after the pain. God himself will give peace like a river. God himself will comfort his people. And when God's people will see all this after the pain that they will have been through, they will rejoice. Now, all these pro promises are the conclusions of the book of Isaiah. How amazing that now, the night before Jesus is crucified, 
he instructs his disciples using the imagery of Isaiah 66 in order to prepare his disciples to face the resistance of the world. This was going to take place not only in the, later in the future after the ascension of Jesus, but that very weekend, that very night, Jesus was going to be arrested and the next day crucified. So these disciples will grieve. In verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And Jesus uses the illustration of a woman experiencing labor pains. Friends, this is not just an illustration. This is not just a random story to paint the picture. This is an echo of Isaiah 66. Only this time Jesus emphasizes the joy that comes after the birth pains. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then verse 22, Jesus says, And no one will take away your joy. What a promise. And then the, that very weekend, the disciples were going to experience a full swing of bewilderment and grief. And then the greatest turn into joy, the joy of the resurrection. And Jesus painted for them that picture of a woman giving birth and going through the pain of, the, of birth and then the joy. That weekend was going to be a pattern for the way these disciples were going to live the rest of their lives after the ascension of Jesus. Jesus is bolstering the faith of these disciples and prepares them for the time when they will face this resistance, this rejection, so they will not stray away both that weekend and the time after the ascension. Friends, for better or worse, we have been sheltered and protected in our society. In the Western world, Christians have been protected to, ex to, ex uh, to have to experience and to live their religious freedoms. But a time may come, even for us, when our stand on various ethical and moral issues will be repudiated. And when we will go back and say, this is what the Lord says, will be rejected. We must prepare for this opposition, even while we live in peace. Now, let me summarize for us the four ways we can prepare for this rejection of the world that we saw in these passages that we looked at. Four things that we must remember, even now, while there's peace. Even now, while we're experiencing religious freedom. First of all, remember that even in times of peace, Rejection from the world is to be expected if we indeed have been chosen out of this world. This is a matter of salvation. This is a matter of what it means to be saved. Even in times of peace, rejection from the world is to be expected if indeed we have been chosen out of this world. A second thing I want you to remember from God's Word, remember that we're not greater than our Master who has been rejected and killed. And therefore, his path of suffering is ours also. This is a part of our salvation. This is a part of following Christ. Third, remember that God has warned us. And he's still in control. And he will repay in the end. God knows that this is coming. 
He knew it 700 years before Christ. Christ said it's coming soon. And since then, we are experiencing that possibility anytime, any season of history. Number four, remember that there is joy beyond the pain and grief. Remember that there is joy beyond the pain and grief, and it will be an everlasting joy. These truths, if we remember them, when opposition comes, we shall be prepared. We shall be prepared and not fall astray. We should persevere in our faith and continue to testify to Christ and call people to trust in His work, even though the cost of following Him might be the rejection of the world. And yet, in the middle of this chapter that warns the disciples of the upcoming trouble in the world, in the middle of this chapter of preparing the disciples to face the opposition of the world, Jesus comes back to the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will assist the believers in their journey on earth, even when the earth will reject us. So let's look at the second point of this passage. Take comfort in the Holy Spirit. Take comfort in the Holy Spirit. Jesus comforts his disciples by telling them again about the Holy Spirit. If you remember two weeks ago, he told them then about the things of the Spirit in, ch in chapter 14. But now in the most clear terms, Jesus tells them why it's better for them that he goes back to the Father. Look with me at verse 7. Why is it better? For them, that Jesus goes back to the Father. Verse 7, But I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This means that the coming of the Spirit was of greater importance and impact for the disciples than if Jesus had stayed around with them after the resurrection. As great as it was to have Jesus around, once he completed his task on earth, it was better for him to go to his Father so that the Spirit might come and do his work. Now, what will the Spirit do that's so important for the disciples to have the Spirit? In this text, Jesus tells us three things the Spirit will do um, why, and why it's important for him to come to us. Three things. The Spirit will convict the world of guilt in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit will guide believers into all truth. And the Spirit will glorify Christ. These three reasons are important enough and are, are weighty enough that Jesus says, it is better for me to go so that the Spirit comes and does these things. Well, let's look at each of these briefly. The first one, verse 8, that tells us, that the Spirit will convict the world of guilt in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. This is one of the tasks God has given the Holy Spirit to come and do while on earth. The Spirit's task in the world is to convict the world of guilt, to bring to light the reality that the world stands condemned in sin. It stands condemned because of its empty righteousness, it stands condemned because the prince of this world has been judged already. And these, this condemnation shows up in, this, in these regards. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, friends, this work of bringing about conviction of sin, of God's righteousness, and of His judgment is the prerequisite of repentance. 
this conviction that the Spirit works of being guilty in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment is a prerequisite of conversion, of repentance. It's only when the Spirit of God creates this conviction in our lives that we realize our desperate need to turn to God, to cry in desperation for a Savior. Without this work of the Spirit in our lives, we do not sense a need to turn to God. And therefore, we cannot experience the work of conversion. Oh, dear friend, perhaps you're visiting us today because someone invited you. Perhaps you just sense a need to come to a church. You Googled us up and you found us and you're here. But you're not experiencing, you have not been converted by the Spirit of God. You're not experiencing the new birth which the Holy Spirit creates in us. My hope for you this morning is that you would believe that the Holy Spirit was sent by God the Father to convict the world of its guilt. And since you belong to this world, you are under the same condemnation. You have the same guilt before God. Our sin, our empty pretense of righteousness, brings God's judgment upon us and upon the whole world. The prince of this world is already judged. But unlike him, God gives you an open door to escape this judgment. Christ was sent to take upon himself the guilt and judgment we deserve. And if you would turn away from your sin and believe in the work of Christ for you and trust in his promises to give eternal life, you too can experience a new life in his name, a life that will never end. Oh, dear friend, if you're not a Christ follower and hear these truths, believe them. They are true. Your only hope is a Savior. Ask Him to rescue you from the coming judgment of righteousness. I pray that God's Spirit will convict you of this morning of these truths. And if you want to respond to Him, you can do so even right now, as you in your own heart can cry out to God and ask God to rescue you, to save you. And if that's your desire this morning, or perhaps you may have, may have other questions about it, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Friends, the work of the Spirit is the inward work of convicting the world of guilt. That's why the Father sent Him. That's why the Son sent Him. Yet, we must be very clear that this work of the Spirit happens through the intelligible proclamation of the Word in the life of the church. The Spirit will use our human words to create this conviction. Paul made this very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 26, when Paul says, But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in, namely in the church, while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner, and he will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. And he does it after being convicted of his sin. And Paul speaks to the church in Corinth to make sure that they speak intelligibly so that this kind of conviction of sin can follow upon unbelievers. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He does this as, as we, the church, the people of God, proclaim his word intelligibly. Friends, this means that we as a church should not be afraid of proclaiming these truths. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is great news for sinners who stand condemned under the righteous judgment of God. And since the Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, we should not be afraid to speak these truths and trust that just as in Corinth, the Spirit uses our human words to bring about this conviction. Friends, without the Spirit to convict of guilt, there is no repentance, and there is no conversion, and therefore there is no new birth. We cannot talk people into salvation. The Spirit of God has to do this work of conviction. But a second work that the Spirit of God will do, He will also guide the disciples in all truth. Verse 12 and 13, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Do you remember what Jesus said while He was on earth? That He does not speak on His own, but only what He hears from the Father? Well, He's saying the same thing about the Spirit now. He's saying the Spirit will not speak on His own, but He will speak only what He hears from the Father or from the Son or from both. This is key. The, the Spirit's role, dear friends, is not to give us a new revelation or an independent revelation of the other two persons of the Trinity. His role is to make personal the teaching of the triune God. The Spirit will bring to us what God has been revealing about Himself through Christ. Early in chapter 14, we were told that the Spirit will indwell in the believers so that His guidance into all truth will be a guidance that will happen in our minds, in our hearts, because He indwells in us. Now, the truth He will guide us into is also not just truth in general, not a philosophic truth, not just religious truth. It's the truth about Christ. Remember how Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Spirit's guiding in all truth is the Spirit's guiding in all the truth that relates to Jesus. The Old Testament was all the truth that was pointing to Jesus. The rest of the New Testament, as it will be revealed later to the apostles and they will write the Scriptures, it will be truth about the implications of Jesus. The things that will come will be things related to Jesus. Everything is going to be really related to Jesus. That's why the third characteristic of the Spirit is that everything the Spirit will teach us will be so that the Spirit will glorify Jesus. Look with me at verse 14. This is the third work of the Spirit. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That is why I said that the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This explains the fact that the Spirit will not speak on its own. He will speak the teachings of Christ. He will take things from Christ and bring it to us. Just as a father, I'm sorry, just as a son brought glory to his father through his ministry on earth, so now the Spirit will bring glory to Jesus by his ministry on earth. More so, the Spirit will take what belongs to Christ 
and make, know, make that known to his disciples. So the Spirit's work, dear friends, is Christocentric. The Spirit's work is Christocentric, not only in shedding light on Christ, but bringing us what belongs to Christ. I love what John Calvin says about this. We receive the Spirit in order that we may enjoy Christ's blessings. We receive the Spirit in order that we might enjoy Christ's blessings. And he goes on and he says, Nothing, therefore, is bestowed on us by the Spirit apart from Christ. But he takes it from Christ. In a word, the Spirit enriches us so that no other riches than the riches of Christ, that, we, that He may display His glory in all things. And this is a key emphasis that is often lost today, especially among charismatic circles, where the emphasis falls uh, primarily on the Spirit's supernatural gifts, as if the spotlight is on the Spirit or on the gifts. Jesus tells us emphatically that the Spirit's responsibility is to bring glory to Christ, not to Himself, and to bring us the riches of Christ and to apply the Word of Christ to our hearts. So why are these three works of the Spirit better for us? Why was it better for Jesus to leave so that now the Spirit could come and do His work? Throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament uh, king times, the age of the kingdom of God was characterized by the coming of the Spirit. When in the Old Testament, in the prophets, Jesus, or God says that He will bring a new time, the time of the kingdom of God, when that will be established, one of the characteristics of that kingdom is that it will be done through the coming of the Spirit. Just one example. There are many. I could point to you this morning. Just one. Ezekiel. Write this down. Ezekiel 36. Read that passage entirely and then read Ezekiel 37. But I'll read this morning just two verses of that passage. I will give you a new heart, says God, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the promise of the coming of the kingdom of God. I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This prophecy, like many others like it, were not possible until the coming of the Spirit, which had to be sent by the Father and the Son. The Son had to return to the Father so that the Spirit could be sent and bring us the riches of Christ and guide us in all truth and apply that truth to our hearts so that we might live it from within, not just from without. That's why it was crucial for the Son to go back to the Father so that the Son might send the Spirit so that the Spirit could bring and apply to us the blessings and the benefits and the teachings of Christ. That's why the age of the Spirit will be characterized by a new kind of obedience to God's laws. 
That's why Jesus said earlier, if you don't obey, you don't love me. Because if there's no this kind of obedience that the Spirit creates in us, you're not really part of me. Because whoever's part of me receives these blessings that the Spirit creates in us. It receives this kind of obedience. It will be an obedience from the heart, from a new heart that has been changed by the Spirit of God. In John 3, Jesus said that the Spirit gives us a new birth. When we are convicted of sin and turn to Christ, we receive a new birth so that this new life promised in the Old Testament can finally be experienced by us. That's why it is better for us that Jesus return to the Father so that these blessings can become ours through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. In God's master plan of redemption, each of the persons of the Trinity had a special role. The Father orchestrated the plan of redemption. The Son executed the plan of redemption. The Spirit applied to our hearts the plan of redemption. What a comfort to troubled hearts. What a comfort to disciples who are told that in this world you will have trouble, that rejection will come. What a comfort to know that God Himself is coming in us through His Spirit. That's why, dear friends, in some ways, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is even more important or just as important as the day of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Another member of the Trinity comes among us to dwell in us. We've been warned about the rejection of the world. We've been comforted by the promise and work of the Holy Spirit. And now at the very end, we are assured that Christ's victory over the world is ours and brings us peace even when we live in a world full of trouble. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us the assurance and the peace and the joy that comes to belonging to Christ. When we have Christ, the Spirit of God brings us His benefits. He brings us His peace. He brings us His joy, regardless of what trouble the world will call against us. I love the words of the hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of the Spirit, washed in His blood. Warnings, comfort, and assurance. Let us pray. Father, we praise your name because you are a